this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are celebrating our third birthday, which was on April 15th, along with our breaking the 150,000 download barrier a week earlier. Over this weekend, we are releasing five conversations from the main podcast recording session, in which Stephen Harrison, Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, and I recounted highlights from the last three years on the podcast and in the fatty liver community at large. These serve as companions to the three special conversations we released yesterday, each containing one of the interviews we conducted as part of this week's episode. This final conversation starts with me going back to my forecasting roots to agree with Stephen Harrison that the more we learn about the role the liver plays in the constellation of metabolic disease and other causes of death, the more all these diseases will, as I put it, fold back on themselves to create a richly textured understanding of how to treat the holistic patient, both at the primary care and specialty level. This leads Louise Campbell to come back to one of her primary points throughout the podcast, that poor liver health is the problem and improving it early in life is pivotal. In fact, she describes the liver as the primary target to improve a society's health and also to save money since that improved health will lead to lower demand for expensive medications and procedures. My final question in this episode is to ask the group what we think we'll be discussing on the sixth anniversary of Nash Tsunami in 2026 and what will happen between now and then to get us to that conversation. Not surprisingly, the four of us answer from our own unique perspectives, but for the most part, our answers are consistent. Jordan Schottenberg discusses the increased use of treatment pathways. Stephen Harrison makes a statement he considers controversial that he believes only a beta-colic acid and resmeteron will be approved by 2026 and discusses what that will mean in terms of care strategies. He follows up by saying that advances in NITs will be even more important and finally notes that there are issues we haven't even seen yet, let alone addressed, that we will come to understand as we know more about this disease. In that regard, he raises the concept of hepatitis C and what we've learned about that disease in the last 10 or 20 years and what that might tell us about what will go right and wrong in the future. Louise Campbell agrees and from the nursing perspective states that the key will be, as she puts it, education, education, education. There's much more in this dialogue, but at the end, I ask Stephen for the last word of the day, which he says is promise, after which he reiterates his belief stated earlier that the orange construction cone is the symbol of where we stand today. We're going further than we are. We are a work in progress, and we're not where we're going to get to yet. After that, Louise Campbell produces a birthday cupcake. We all blow out the candle symbolically, and the episode and year three of Surfing the Nash Tsunami come to an end. Before we dive into this conversation, I want to thank the three sponsors of our celebration, Magical Pharmaceuticals, Novo Nordisk, and Inventiva Pharma, along with some of the patient advocacy organizations that have been supporters since we started the podcast, notably including the Global Liver Institute, Nash Knowledge, the Fatty Liver Foundation, and the Fatty Liver Alliance. Finally, I want to thank Louise Campbell, who joined me for all three interviews and has been with us since episode four of year one, and Stephen Harrison and Jorn Schottenberg, our two other lead surfers who've been along throughout this three-year journey. If I put on a commercial forecaster hat, which occasionally I still do, I wind up where Stephen was, which is if you take a look at mace and mallow and kidney and obesity, and you go back to the idea, again, a Harrisonism of the liver as the canary in the coal mine, the liver is the canary for all that stuff. And when we think about commercialization, educating healthcare professionals, these diseases will increasingly fold back on themselves. Understanding fatty liver is the piece that helps the connectivity between a lot of these other things where it was easier to identify what you're treating, HbA1c, for example, but the connectivity between the diseases wasn't necessarily what they are. When you, when you put the liver in the middle of it, the connectivity becomes a lot better, which means we ask primary care to look at each of these things with all the others in mind, and it becomes a very, very different. At the same time that we're looking for better solutions for each possible liver outcome, we're also looking at that in the context of everything that plays out from the liver. I think some of the challenges are really going to be fascinating, but when you look at it, I mean, Stephen, you wind up on GLP-1s, right? Go past that to the 
the dual the glucagon and the triple glucagon agents, right? And that's a big whack of a lot of things at once. Louise Campbell. But you come back to poor liver health being the solution and it also the target very early in life. If we keep people's livers healthy, we should see the reduction in MACE. We should see all of the other areas reduce. So it is. I agree with Stephen. I'm a liver health advocate in that way. Let's find poor liver health early to stop liver disease, but also to stop the other interconnected conditions, either secondary or primary, that come from poor liver health. For me, and I think for most of us here, it is the biggest potential target to turn around public health in any country, and particularly low socioeconomic countries, where you don't want to have expensive medications because you're not going to get them. You don't want to have liver biopsies because it threatens the life of somebody who is the primary breadwinner in an area where they don't have the care for liver biopsy. So non-invasive technologies, as Stephen and Litmus and Goldmine and Nail NIT improve, it actually has the mass potential to improve the outcomes of liver health in those countries least able to be able to afford these medications coming. So it is, it is the canary in the coal mine. And we have seen, obviously, that American Heart add liver disease and liver and NAFLD and NASH to its guidelines and recommendations anyway. And the Diabetes Association add it to its standards of care. So that canary is becoming a little bit more chirpy in its cage. And we're getting there. And a much bigger canary, I might add. Let me let me do this. We're getting, we're getting towards the top of the hour. So first of all, I'll talk about all the contest results after you guys are off air, just so that, so that we can move ahead. Let's do this closing question. Take as much time as you need with the answer. It's uh, the Ides of April 2026. It is the sixth anniversary episode of Nash Tsunami, probably with a new host, but we'll worry about that in three years. What will we be talking about then and what will have transpired intervening three years to get us to that point? Jörn Schottenberg. So let me start. I think in three years, we're going to be more intensively discussing the NAFLD referral pathways and how to apply that drug, the, the diagnostics, how to implement that in, in clinical trial. It's going to be the bread and butter on how do I treat the sick liver of the patient that has myocardial infarction and the combination of, of aspects in these patients. So I think that will become increasingly available. And, and us as the hepatologists, we're going to be able to inform the physicians on whether this is an at-risk liver disease patient and we recommend the approved drug or uh, kind of pull out and say, well, you look for the metabolic comorbidities first and don't worry so much about the liver. So I think there's going to be that segmentation of at-risk patients and the recommendation for treatment for whatever's available at that time. And how do we treat these patients together? I think this is going to be an important discussion. Stephen Harrison. I'm just going to be real provocative. I think in three years, you know, you think about what drugs potentially will be approved. Could be a beta-colic acid, could be resmedarone. Beyond that, at three years, I'm not sure there's another drug that's made it through subpart H and has filed and has been reviewed and has been approved by 2026. So I think you'll see broad adoption if both drugs are approved. You'll see adoption of both drugs, but there will be some clarity around where both of those are going to be used. And I guarantee you there will be studies where both of them are used together. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of in investigational studies, perhaps we're going to hear from the duet trial with turns, which is combining an FXR with a THR beta. So you'll have a phase two trial uh, with both. And then I think if that's positive and both drugs get approved, it's going to be interesting to see what combination therapy looks like on uh, late 
label and off label. The other thing is I think where we'll see the biggest advancement is in the non-invasive testing field. And I think we'll see big advances in AI digital pathology. You know, it could be that Path AI has AIM Nash approved as a drug development tool through the biomarker qualification program. That could enact sweeping changes in the way that subpart H is is addressed. And I think we'll have more precise and accurate NITs using lipidomics, proteomics, epigenetics, methylated DNA, um, combinations of those. I think we'll be better at finding the right patients. But at the same time, I think in 2026, there will be a ton to talk about that we have not yet figured out. Imagine what we do today with hepatitis C. We're talking about eradication, elimination strategies. But at the same time, we have patients, I just saw one two weeks ago, that has failed Epclusa and Maverick. So they're out there. How do we manage the failures? How do we manage those that that we still can't find? What are we going to do with the people that get treated with the beta-colic acid and resmeterone but still have advancing disease? How are we going to manage those people? What kind of tools do we need in our toolbox to identify the patients that are not going to respond to therapy and identify those that are rapid progressors? I still think we haven't answered that well. So there will be as many questions in 2026 as there are today just a different flavor. Makes sense. So the one question I have, and this isn't an answer, I'm not a scientist, is that it, it turns out that one of the two nominees for my most frequent stated is that my last natural science course was high school biology. So I'll say that again at this moment, is if in fact our perspective on how all the metabolic diseases fit start to fold in on each other, then approved or unapproved, I suspect that the GLP-1s and the dual agonists, there already be one of those on the market and maybe more by then, whatever their indications are, will have more of a role to play earlier in the disease progression. And therefore, Louise, whether indicated or not, not more about liver health than about liver disease. But I wonder if that starts to slow the rate at which the disease grows, at least in the advanced economies. It could. But remember from the hep C world, how many people you needed to treat and cure before you left that big fat den on the planet in the name of liver transplant regression, in the name of decompensating disease prevention. You had to climb the mountain to around 60, 70% of patients being treated and cured, maybe even higher than that, before you began to see a drop-off. So while the GLP-1s, the GIPs, the GLPs, the glucagon agonists, all of those have a special role to play and are no doubt impactful, there are three different types of patients. There are those that get it and respond. There are those that get it and can't tolerate it. And there are those that have no access to that therapy and can't afford it. Right. And to come back to the example of Hep C, right, we have a tremendously effective drug, but the challenges to identify the patients. And that's what I meant. You know, we're going to sit down and define the referral pathways and how to identify them. The same holds true for advanced or pre-serotic NASH, right? If we can hit a lot of people with fatty liver with GLP-1s. Those are not the cases that will prevent transplantation, HCC, and decompensation. We need to identify those that are on the highway to, you know, cirrhosis and decompensation. And that's the challenge. It's so closely linked to the biomarker. And again, I do see so many uh, developments here from academic and the clinical trial space. So that's really the challenge. And all that makes sense. So what year was the first DAA approved for hep C? You're not talking about the, the bocepravir and the telopavir. You're talking about 
Parvoni. Parvoni, right. When was that approved? About 10 years ago, maybe? 2014, we got access in the UK, so it would have been 2012, uh, Nine years, okay. Sounds about right, yeah. By that standard, we haven't even hit year one in fatty liver disease. No, and the concerning thing about that is we've had access for nine years, certainly in the UK. We are still using nurse specialists to deliver and those treatments and specialised doctors. It has not been rained down to primary care as a one tablet once a day. We'll see you in six, eight, 12 weeks, which is what was discussed. So I, that brings me to my thing of what we're going to be discussing in three years. We're be going to be discussing the lack of education out to tertiary areas, nurse specialists in multi-comorbidity settings to be able to deliver these medications because there is not a chance of every hepatologist in the world purely managing all of these medications, resmiterone and obetacolic acid, if there are only those two medications available on top of the GLP ones in obesity, weight loss and those areas. So we do have have a growing need to get that education program started now because if we're never going to release these patients to primary care once we've got them then we have a problem then my other comment was on what Stephen was saying is we're going to see a wealth of data for non-invasive technology I think if we use what could potentially be happening in the UK with the government announcing significant promotion of fibre scan into over a hundred integrated care areas throughout the UK in the next two years I would expect a minimum of 10,000 scans to be done by each of those units, coordinating those results and being able to see what the bio data tells us on every single one of those real world people so that we can really strengthen the biomarkers that are showing us the data. So collecting that data from the real world people before, and not just NAFLD and NASH, but multiple comorbid liver conditions, hepatitis C with NAFLD, HIV co-infection. So BASH, ASH, all of these multi-different liver health issues that we've got we are about to release an awful lot of real world data from the UK and that needs to be managed very very well or we're going to lose it and I think that for me as Stephen's rightly said we are going to strengthen and strengthen non-invasive technologies and really get to the information but we're also going to be able to find a lot more people with poor liver health and liver disease and I think what we will be missing is the data from the GLP-1 use of semaglutide in clinics that aren't doing anything but biomarkers for liver disease but we are going to see an awful lot more liver cancer in those populations as we start to work through them so I think we will be talking about non-invasive technologies increased cancer rates but also increased detection in the next three years and education 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 so if this is just one podcast, it might go three hours a week, huh? So, so Stephen, let me, uh, John Wick, let me let you have a last word. First of all, we, now that you're back, we'd love to have you back again soon. You, you and friends have put together two fantastic papers recently on clinical trial issues. I'd love to put an episode on that and maybe a couple of other things, but take the last word for today. Promise, hope. I mean, I think that's what I take away from three years of podcasting and, and the next three years. And again, like I said, maybe our mascot should be the orange construction cone because we are not where we used to be and we are not where we want to be. And this podcast is the conduit to deliver the information that's being generated and help frame the discussion on where we should go from here. So if you're a listener, uh, thank you. If uh, you want 
to have things discussed that we haven't discussed, please please let Roger know and we can try to build that into the content. And just a special thanks to Louise and Yorn and you for leading the charge on this podcast and that, you know, it didn't go away after 12 episodes, you know, and it's continued now for what, 180, 85 or 86 or something Today is like 186. That. Yeah, that's right. 186. So 100, 151,000 downloads, nine hosts, 60 guests. Wow. Just impressive statistics, no doubt. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording, creating and fostering this podcast over the past three years, and in the process getting to know the fatty liver community, has been one of the most rewarding experiences of my professional life. We all want to express our deepest gratitude to the thousands of you who have downloaded our episodes, and particularly those who have shared your stories or reactions with us over time. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation, or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week, we will be joined by French endocrinologist Cyril Kelsey for a fantastic discussion of the intersections between endocrinology and hepatology, looking at issues ranging from clinical research to care pathways. The Nash Tsunami team is really excited about this discussion. You should be as well. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.